0: Hello, and welcome to Speaking
1: with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make
0: yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin.
1: Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to a brand new season of Speaking with Joy. I'm so excited to kick this season off by sharing with all of you the recordings from my events this summer, the live Speaking with Joy events, where we talked about why beauty matters in a broken world. Now, we had a few problems with the recordings, so I don't have the live recordings of our music because for some reason my singing mic didn't pick up a track. So instead, I've edited in bits uh, with our studio tracks. So in this, you'll hear our talks from the evenings, and then I've edited in Joel's and my music with the appropriate songs for the appropriate talks. I hope that you all enjoy listening to this, and I look so forward to welcoming you back with a brand new episode next week. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Speaking with Joy live. So, tonight we are here to talk about why beauty matters in a broken world. And to begin that conversation, I want to tell you about um, a summer afternoon in my 15th year. Now, like many houses in Colorado, uh, we don't have air conditioning. And one summer, I couldn't drive, I was full of angst because I was a teenager and that's what it is to be a teenager. And my room was on the very top floor and so it was roasting, it was an oven. So one day, I went to the basement where Joel was gone doing some adult thing as he was very much, seemed like an adult to me in my 15-year-old years, and so I went down to his basement room, and there in the quiet and cold, I had some peace, and I started flipping through his CDs, and in that, there was one album by Sufian Stevens. Do we have any Sufian Stevens listeners? At least two of you. Um, so Sufian Stevens is this um, very artistic, angsty person. And there's this one song called the Casimir Paluski Day. And it is about, um, it's, it's from the perspective of a young man who loves a girl who is dying. And it's about the summer that they spend together. And all through the song, there is this tension between the beauty and the love and the depth that he feels in this relationship and the brokenness of the world. And the chorus, the words he sings over and over again are all the glory that the Lord has made and the complications we could do without. And I remember sitting there, think, sitting as a 15 year old, thinking, that's so deep. But in reality, there is something in that that captures our experience of the world, which is that the world is charged with beauty, charged with the grandeur of God, as Gerard Manley Hopkins would say. And yet there's also this brokenness. And there's this sense in which we have a hard time making these two things sit together. We don't always know how to treat it. And for me, this was particularly poignant because I think of myself as a sensitive person in this sense. I am sensitive to the wonder and beauty and loveliness of the world. I feel like I'm like a knob that's turned a little bit higher so that every bit of beauty kind of makes me more excited than the next person. And that gives me a great deal of delight. And I've always loved books and stories and the beauty of our beautiful mountains in Colorado. But it also means that I have this great sensitivity to the brokenness of the world and that sometimes it would kind of undo me. Where I would feel like, how can we exist in this world that is so profoundly broken and so profoundly beautiful? All the glory that the Lord has made and the complications we could do without. So through my life, there's been this tension between loving beauty and also feeling very deeply and profoundly the brokenness of the world and my desire to do something about it. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I've done a lot with the beauty side. So I I have done my master's at uh, St. Andrew's University in Scotland on theology, imagination, and the arts, which dwells on how the arts and literature shape our spiritual lives, how they help us understand God. And then, of course, I do my podcast where every week I choose a theme and I look at it through literature and visual art and music. So I've spent a lot of time enjoying and loving beauty in the arts. But there's always this tension in me because I think the world is so urgent. It's so full of need and it's so full of injustice. Do these things matter in the light of those things? And it makes me feel like I should focus relentlessly on the darkness because I need to do something about it. And all of this beauty can begin to feel either like a pleasant distractions so that I don't go crazy from the madness of the world, or it can feel like a dire distraction, something that pulls me away from the real work of working for justice and fighting darkness. So what do we do with that tension? Is beauty actually doing anything important in our world? Should we make space for it in our lives? And to tell you why I think it does matter, I have to give you something that can't really be explained in words, but I will try my very best. And that is an experience that I had. So when I was 19 years old, I got to study abroad for a semester in Oxford. And it was funny, I think I heard about the study abroad program on like the very first day when I was in my undergrad. And they said, you have to get this GPA, you know, this, this high of GPA to get in and stuff. I don't think I would have tried that hard in academics if I hadn't had England dangling before my nose. Um, so I worked very hard and I got into this program and I was so excited to go. And while I was there, um, one of my best friends from childhood, uh, Terry Moon's daughter, I don't know where Terry is, but one of my best friends from childhood happened to also be in London. And so we made this plan to go on a trip to Ireland because if there was one place that was more enchanting in our imaginations than England, it was Ireland. And so we... um, It was one of those trips in which we were so excited and enthusiastic, but everything that could go wrong did go wrong. So the first thing that happened was we bought, um, I don't know if anyone's ever traveled overseas, but there's this airline called Ryanair. And you can get really, really cheap tickets on Ryanair. So we were all proud of ourselves. We'd gotten the same ticket from the same airline to the same place. But somehow we got them from different airports. So we're sitting in London going, oh my gosh, like we can't both go at 4.30, it was a 6 a.m. flight, 4.30 in the morning to different places. So we just bit the bullet and we thought, you know, we'll just buy, we'll just buy another airplane ticket. So we did that. And then uh, we got up at 4 a.m. the next morning after, I remember we were in one of the dorms and so there had been you know, loudness all night. We didn't really sleep. We get up at 4 a.m. to go get our, our uh, bus. We were gonna get a taxi to the bus you know, to the airport because all the airports are outside of London. and. I'm used to America, where, you know, they say that New York City never sleeps. But really, America never sleeps. You can almost always get a taxi or something at any time of day. This is not the case in England. So we, with our little suitcases, go off to the train station, thinking we can get a bus from there. And not only is the train station closed, but there's no taxis. So somehow we end up, you know, wandering around, thinking surely somewhere in the city there's a taxi. Uh, We end up in front of this, like, one of London's busiest nightclubs. Um, just like wandering around being like, is there a taxi? So finally, we end up back at her dorm, and they all have porters, which I think is very cute. And um, we said, please get us a taxi. And at this point, it's literally an hour before our flight. And so we were like, we're probably going to miss our flight. Um, but we got a taxi. And you know how you can see like little estimated time of arrival? This guy took 15 minutes off of the estimated time of arrival. <laughs> Because he drove so fast, and it was, it was absolutely terrifying, um, and we were so thankful. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he was breaking laws, like you know, but it was great. So we get there, and literally we have, I think it was 25 minutes from getting to the airport to, to the plane taking off. The great thing, though, about budget airlines is that they always take off late. So we ran through security, made it onto the plane, and our one consolation was that we had, window- we had a window seat, so we were going to watch the sunrise over Dublin. And we got on the airplane. We were literally the last people. We go, and where there should be a window, there's just a wall. We were like, well, this seems about right. So we finally made it to Dublin. Oh, there's one more thing. We finally made it to Dublin. We were going to check into our Airbnb. She said the key will be under the pot, in the potted plant in the front yard. And she had 15 potted plants. And I was like... Why would you do that? (laughs) There's so many other identifying markers. Anyway, so, uh, (laughs) you know, not here to judge, but maybe I'd be a better Airbnb host. I don't know. Um, So anyway, we get there, and we ended up having a beautiful day. But if you were a slightly sensitive person, having had a ton of stress and not slept all day, um, I was kind of at my heightened awareness of beauty and brokenness all in the world. And this was a particular moment in um, a few years ago when there was a lot of kind of terrible stuff happening. There's always a lot of terrible stuff happening on the news. but There's a lot of violent stuff that was happening on the news. And I remember having this great day in Dublin, but then walking by and seeing this, this this TV and seeing the news and it was um, some journalist had died overseas and this is happening over and over again and I just felt this like wave of darkness come over me and I think many of us have experienced this and I just felt this heaviness and I all of a sudden felt very small and afraid and like what am I doing overseas by myself how did this all happen um, and I had this wave of darkness uh, but a little bit later, this was kind of our last thing of the day, uh, we went to go see the Book of Kells. Now, does anybody know what the Book of Kells is? I can't wait to introduce the rest of you to this. So, the Book of Kells um, is, the long the long and short, kind of the history book definition of it is, it is an illuminated manuscript, it's an illuminated gospel. So this was something that was done particularly in the monasteries in like the 5th through the ninth centuries. And um, it's basically this, just kind of beautiful way of of keeping. They would they would write down the gospels, but then on the on the front pages they would have these beautiful designs, and um, and it's so. This is one of the most famous, but I didn't really know anything other about it other than that it was famous and I should see it because it was very old, and um, we've all done that on trips. So we go in, and first there's this exhibition where they talk about the world in which the Book of Kells was made, and. The Book of Kells was made during the times of the Viking raids. And so we're going through, and it's telling this story about how this beautiful, illuminated kind of work of art manuscript was made in a monastery that had been um, sacked 17 times in 15 years. And I was like, oh my gosh. And in one of those times, um, there, there were, I think there were like 25 head like the abbots and the monks, and 13 of the 25 monks had been killed in one of those attacks. So it was this very wild, violent time. And then they had the picture of like the leather binding that was wrapped around the book. And even the leather binding, you could literally see the singe marks on this you know, 1,300-year-old book. So I, I started to kind of have this reverence for the book that I had not seen yet, thinking, it has survived great and terrible things. And finally, we get into the room where they have the Book of Kells opened up to this front page. And I like old books more than the next person. But this was a book that would have enchanted anyone. When I looked at it, you have to remember this is over a thousand years old. They say it was made between the 6th the and the 8th century. And it had these intricate designs. Um, it was at a time when they were the... Celtic world was just becoming Christianized and so it was all of like the pagan art but then done to glorify Christ who's sitting in the middle and there were deep greens and this bright gold and the deep red and I was shocked that these colors could be so vivid after these over a thousand years and when you look at it it almost looks as though it's moving it's so intricate and that's the other thing you know we have our kind of chronological snobbery where we think that surely anything old can't be intricate but these designs were so intricate and tiny and i was just in awe of this book and as i looked at it i had this kind of moment that was a wash of revelation and it was like a wash of light in the same way that i'd had that wash of darkness and i realized that when i go into my anxious afraid brain and i look at that tv and i have that wash of darkness my mind goes to all of the worst things that could happen. I could immediately think of the worst things that could happen in my life, in my world, in my country. And I looked at this book, and I thought, the worst thing happened to the monks who made this book 17 times in 15 years. And the thing that seemed the most important to them was to create this piece of beauty and to preserve it. And that did something for me. It unlocked something inside of me that, like I said, is a little bit too complicated for words. But I will try, in my best as I can, to say what I think it showed to me. Genesis 1-1 is an excellent opening to a book, perhaps the best opening that there ever has been. And in it it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the surfaces of the deep, and it was formless and void. Now, I love this picture because in Hebrew, that hovering is a picture of a mother bird hovering over a nest with eggs in it. It's this picture of something hovering over, burgeoning life. But the picture we're given of this thing that God is hovering over is that it's the earth and it's formless and void. And God goes into that formlessness and that void, and he immediately gives it form and he fills it up. So something that was dark and lumpy and, and empty becomes the seas, the land. And then he fills it with fish and he fills it with, uh, with uh, plants and creatures. He takes what was formless and void and kind of lumpy and makes it something beautiful. And what I realized as I looked at the book of Kells was I thought, that is what they were doing. They were in a world in which evil was stomping around, breaking things and killing them and hurting them as evil has always done. Evil is always the undoer. And the greatest response they could have to that was not to go and break some more things or stomp some more. It was to create order and beauty and form. It was like this, this vindication of the idea that at the heart of the universe is not violence and darkness, but beauty and a creator God who is always making things formed and beautiful. And this reminds me of two things, I think, as I looked at this. It made me realize two things about beauty. The first is that wherever we see beauty, we are reminded that evil and darkness and sin are not the final or the fundamental thing. There's a wonderful passage in Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo have made it into Mordor. And at this point, they're kind of doing it out of duty. They're kind of weary. They're in the darkness and they're thinking, what could push us forward? What would make us continue on? But then you have this passage with Sam. It says, There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tore high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And when I saw the book of Kells, that's what I saw. I saw that shaft of light that reminded me that far beyond the reach of darkness, The fundamental reality of the earth is a god who makes beauty and who forms things and fills them, that there is love and beauty and form more fundamentally in the heart of the universe than there is darkness and decay. And it made me realize that in our fight against darkness, whether that is in a desire to fight for justice or in a desire to take care of our earth or to take care of families, we always have to have that picture of the high light and the high beauty that is above the darkness. Because if we fight against darkness stemming from a heart of indignation, that will calcify into bitterness and will eventually eat us up. But if we fight for for goodness and for beauty and for justice, because we have in our hearts that picture of justice and of light and of beauty, then we will never give up hope because we know that that is truly the fundamental reality of the earth. The second thing that it made me realize is that when we create beauty in any of its form, we participate in God's redemptive work in the world. When I looked at the book of Kells, I realized that this was not only a scholarly pursuit, though I am very in favor of scholarly pursuits. It was an act of defiance against a world that saw itself only as the conquered and the conquering. It was an act of defiance saying that we are on the side of the God who looks into the void and formless earth and gives it form and beauty and hovers over it. And I think that something else we have to remember is that they didn't just create a work of beauty. They created a work of beauty that encapsulated the story of Christ. It was the four Gospels. And that's because if we don't believe that fundamentally the world is light and beautiful, and that's at the heart of it, and also that someday all things will be redeemed, then all of our little acts of beauty will become hopeless or will begin to feel heavy. But when we look at Christ, Christ is the one who came into the formless and void world, who took on death, who soaked it into himself. There is no way that he could ever, that death or evil could ever be absorbed into the, could not be absorbed into the eternal God. So he absorbs that into himself and begins his work in the world of creating beauty and wholeness and togetherness. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians where it says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's trespasses against them. And he has committed the message to us of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And I love this picture because Christ not only does something for us, he invites us into his creative and redemptive work. And so, just like the monks, wherever we create form and beauty, we draw ourselves into that work of God in the world. That is what I saw when I looked at the book of Kells. I understood that beauty matters because we have to have it to fix our eyes on, to remind us that there is light and high beauty far beyond the darkness of the world, and that if we don't have that vision, we'll be driven out of indignation, and that will become bitterness. But also because I looked and I saw that every act of beauty, whether that is making a garden orderly and lovely, whether that is playing beautiful music or cooking a meal or bringing order in your family, that is an act of defiance against the darkness of the world, the world that destroys and breaks and undoes. When we create beauty and when we see it, we join into God's redemptive work in the world. So now we want to play a song that Joel and I wrote together, and it is about that hope that, that there is a light and a high beauty beyond the reaches of darkness, and the hope that is rooted in the one who has already gone and risen.
2: Turn on trees die and decay. Is this the fall, or is it just the way seeds fall into the ground?
0: We take for granted, are not ways if they are planted. We will grow if we can stand it, if we push beyond the fear. All these days we take for granted, are not waste if they are planted. There's a hope that grows inside.
3: Well, this is so much fun to get to do this. Um, I am delighted to join in tonight. Uh, Joy and I have gotten to do, uh, some of you have seen us before doing uh, concerts as two benedictions, and uh, this is of course sort of a fun new experiment for us. It's, it's uh, mostly headed by Joy. I mean, uh, with her podcast and growing this sort of this um, this vision of engaging with the arts and engaging with beauty in this very sort of manifested way. I'm just so delighted to join in with her on that. And for those of you who do listen to the podcast, or for those of you who don't, um, for those of you who do, you know that I am uh, occasionally her music expert, which doesn't mean a lot because I don't know how much I actually know, but I have a lot of opinions. So. That's usually what you'll get if you listen to a podcast, which I'm joining in with Joy on. But it's been really fun because I actually I have a music background. That's that's uh, sort of where I started. I got a composition degree from Berklee College of Music in Boston, and uh, I got it. I just I've loved music since uh, since as long as I can remember. I've been I sang very very early on in life, and I never kind of I never stopped. And uh, I have so enjoyed the journey along the way. I got to go to L.A. after I graduated Berklee and work in composition in the film industry and I work on movies and TV and I got to sort of uh, get the dirt under my fingernails of engaging with music in a real way and seeing how people use it for story and collaborating with other artists and seeing how their craft is different than mine but how we can sort of work together to bring this to bear and I um, uh, just being in that world and watching the way that that um, that music can engage with with our lives through story, I began to see how it is that God moves. Us through our senses, how he comes to us through our senses, and as a musician, this is made uh, manifest for me a lot, and it, it's why I began to really, really enjoy working with church choirs. So uh, while I was in LA, I started to do this, and I've I've done it increasingly. I've I've actually uh, this is part of what has caused me to take this weird left turn out of music and into theology. Uh, I am at the I'm also at St Andrews. Uh, Joy is of course doing a PhD there. I'm also doing a PhD there, same department although a different different topic, but. We get to sort of draw from that world uh, when we come to the podcast, because we're sitting in our living room, having gone to seminars and having worked for, you know, several hours staring at our computers, looking at the void and hoping we can draw something meaningful out of it. And we bring that to uh, the living room when we come back home at the end of the day and sort of just chat about it and get into it. And... um, and this this sort of vision of encountering God through our five senses has been made really real to me in St. Andrews because for those of you who don't know, St. Andrews is on the east coast of Scotland. It's this historic town. It's um, at the cathed- there's a cathedral there. It's in ruins. There's a long story to it, but the history of there is so palpable. And um, there's um, there's just such profound natural beauty in Scotland. For those of you who've been there, you you will know this this experience. But uh, every single day it's different. The sea is about five minutes from our house. And so uh, we often go and walk on the sea. I uh, walk along the sea, walk along the shore in west sands. Uh, some of you will know uh, know about this uh, if you've um, ever heard. Dun, da, da, dun, dun, da, 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 da. Yep, yep, Chariots of Fire. That's, that's the beach. That's St. Andrews. So if you go back and watch the, the uh, Chariots of Fire and watch for the beach scene, that's St. Andrews. But it's just beautiful. The sea changes colors every day. The, the clouds uh, change color. Sometimes they change color in five minutes. You'll be walking in a beautiful sunny day and suddenly there's clouds and the, the sea starts to roil and you're suddenly surrounded by just the, the majesty of nature and the wildness of it. And uh, and this has become a way for me to, when I, when I run up against a wall, whether I'm writing or whether I'm having a frustration in life, I get out of the house, I go and I walk to the shore and I let the openness of it fill me and I, I listen and I let the silence come over me. And this is something I learned very, very early in life. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I'm very grateful to have uh, grown up in a family that um, was, was what I would say is very incarnational, got us, got us very much in, in the engagement of those five senses. We had music, we had discussion around the dinner table, we had uh, wonderful meals every day, we read aloud as a family. And one of the things which has stayed most um, powerfully with me throughout my life has been um, that we were almost always in proximity to nature and so we were encouraged constantly and this was sort of just on the cusp of the internet so it was right before it was starting to come to bear but we were encouraged constantly to to get out of the house to go out into nature to just engage with it and to grow and to explore and um, I want to share a story with you um, I, I'm so excited to start to put some of these themes uh, onto paper because I, I've just uh, uh, started writing a, a book um, that I'm going to be it's going to be released. Really through NAV Press uh, in 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 the coming years, in the coming couple of years, uh, called Holy Alive, Encountering Jesus Through Our Five Senses. And the the sort of scope of this is drawn from my experience. I want to sort of share my own story. And so I want to share with you tonight a story from the first chapter, um, which is sort of the beginnings of this for me, where I first began to catch this vision of encountering God through five senses, the, 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 the different five senses. Let's see if I can pull this up. So this is Jesus, the source of all beauty. I can still remember the way I was able to taste the heat before I felt it. There had been a hint of it in the air, even with the AC blasting, and when my father turned off the car, it took mere seconds for this sweltering warmth to ooze inside. It was a sticky taste, full of dirt and cedar and pond water, and soon it was to become as familiar as breath. My family had moved to the middle of nowhere. Well, actually the middle of Texas. Locals would say that if you took a pin and stuck it right in the middle of a map of Texas, you'd hit Walnut Springs. Right there in the no man's land between the soft verdant landscape of East Texas and the striking desert spread of West Texas, Bosque County stubbornly held the gap as the unnoticed, ungainly sibling between the two. And it was to this perceived limbo that my family moved to live near my grandmother. Of course, as a seven-year-old, I wasn't old enough to discern between one sort of landscape or another or put a value judgment on heat so palpable you could chew it up and swallow it whole. For me, everything was delightfully new. A sprawling ranch house with an attic sufficiently large enough to allow my child-sized imagination room to romp around instead of our previous house, a colonial structure that looked like every other two-story box on the street. The land behind that rancher, a veritable country in of itself, was contained only by the barbed wire boundaries at the end of the 200 acres that comprised my grandmother's property. There wasn't one part of that 200 acres that I didn't love with my whole heart. My siblings and I would romp around the tank, which is a man-made fishing pond, with raucous glee, never managing to stay dry for any extended period of time. On other occasions, we'd amble down the dirt road, stretching from our home to the back of the property, skirting around deep ruts carved out by tires and fossilized into hardened molds by the elements. Once there, we'd veer from the road, taking a stealthy excursion through the tall Texas grass, always wary of snakes and other hidden critters. Finally, it'd be down the small red dirt path, across the stream, and up the slippery embankment where we would arrive at our cabin. The cabin rested on the top of a small ledge about five feet above the water, though to my child's eyes it appeared to be dozens of feet in a vertical climb. It was a strangely arresting affair. The tiny box structure was composed of beams of crackly cedar all put one on top of the other. Materials which we children had salvaged from a timber pile meant for fence posts. The roof was a makeshift project consisting of a variety of dried grasses, which in the summer always preserved enough pollen to confound me into sneezing fits. There was no insulation with gaping holes like lopsided prison bars appearing from the inside. But our cabin was hardly a prison. To us it was a fortress, a place of security, of joy and happiness. Here we would make our homestead, our establishment. It was a small feat to the untrained eye, but to the expert eyes of a child, it was a masterpiece of architecture. In those two summers before we moved way back to the city, we explored and conquered every field, tree, and body of water and claimed it in the name of childhood. Our feet plunged through water and into squelching mud. Our hands took hold of limestone and cedar, climbing and crawling our way through the adventures of undiscovered landscape. A warm wind from nowhere would whisk across our faces an astonishing refreshment. When we grew weary of such toilsome exercises, we would retire to our fortress in the woods where we would engage in a world of imagination, wild and set apart from the safe places of the world. If you could have listened, you would have heard every field crying out in joy and all the trees clapping their hands in wonder and amazement at our childhood feats. I think the grass itself just might have bowed down in awe of the innocence and pure child delight that we exuded. Every shout for joy, every relishing of a rock or a stream or a tree was an unconscious act of praise on my part. My heart rose in thanksgiving for the beauty I beheld in every corner of creation in our little patch of Texas soil. And even if I wasn't yet able to speak the name hidden within every encounter of that glory, I knew in my innermost parts that it was true. Nature has always held me firmly in its grasp. When I feel distant from the world, lost and alone, I I often plunge myself back into the midst of creation and listen for the voice on the wind that called to me as a child. I loved it with my whole heart when I was young, even though the singer of the song of nature was still hidden from me then. As I have grown older, the light of that glory has become cast in the shade of adult troubles, of financial challenges and family tragedies, of professional setbacks and private failures. The story of the gospel, of the death which sin brings and the life found in salvation, the story which felt so inconsequential as a child, has captured me. I find myself wrapped up into that narrative in a way I can't escape, in a way that has shaped me and drawn me to seek the light that redemption brings. The propositional truth of Christianity has become my story, an ordering of the world which rings as true as a church bell, and yet... There is a part of me that knows I can only believe those things to be true because I have experienced the goodness of them all of my life through the means of beauty. The song of nature has never left me void. And while the pain and the experience of a broken world has compelled me to learn the name of the one who saves, I had already met him long ago in my childhood, and I still encounter him day by day in the song of nature. When I was a child, My praise was an unspoken rising of the heart for the song sung by a hidden singer. Now the singer has a name, Jesus.
2: Sun and summer wind full of light and innocence grass was bent in reverence and wonder of the sight beautiful naivete we were fearless we were free dancing forth in reverie into the rising Son, Where have you gone? Where have you run? Oh, beautiful man, can you rise with the sun And
0: save us again, and save us again?
2: Fingers running through my hair bear the weight of every care grace that wrestles with despair this doubt and misery wrinkled brow and clouding mind fading memories inside darkness comes i cannot hide i cry myself of truth were growing within me, grasses withering away, flowers rise and flowers fade, in the darkness and the shade again and save us 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 again
3: So there's an interesting thing about uh, the way that beauty finds its way into relationships because there's something so gritty about the way that we take the idea of something and then it gets into the real warp and woof of our lives. And there's a great Dostoevsky quote. It's from the Brothers Karamazov. And... It's by a very interesting character named Ivan, and I'm not gonna tell you much about the story, but I'll give you the quote, and then I encourage you to go read the book. But- uh, It's very, very long. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but Ivan says, the more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. <laughs> and I think this is a very common experience because getting into those relationships, we start to lose the ability to speak into what we want to say once we're face to face with somebody there's the encounter of who they are and i I can't change them i can't make them something different they are a mystery onto themselves and so this song is about that it's about what happens when we encounter another person and we begin to lose what we have to say in in the difficulty and the challenge of learning how to love them well and to be in relationship with others (laughs)
2: There are some things that I can never say There are some words I don't know how to pray When it comes to you I always end up looking the other way Cause there are some things that I can never say There are some things that I can never say some thoughts that I cannot erase.
3: There is
2: a bitter pill that I must taste. When it comes to you, I know that there is anger I must face. Cause there are some thoughts that I cannot erase. There are some thoughts that I cannot erase sometimes love is just a word and words can always lose the meaning and i know it do. There are so many things I feel that I must do for you. When it comes to you, I know that what you say may not be true, but there are so many things I feel that I must do. There are so many things I feel that I Sometimes love is just a word, and words can always lose their meaning, and I know when I'm with you, I often feel alone, but I hold on to the chance that these words can be This may someday
0: feel like home
2: There are some things that I can never say There are some words I don't know how to pray When it comes to you I can't say if I'll go or if I'll stay, cause there are some things that I can never say. There are some things that
1: I can never say. So friends, we are drawing to the end of this evening but I just want to thank you so much for coming and I hope that this has been an evening in which you not only thought about why beauty mattered in a dark world but where you also experienced it. And we also wanted to say thank you all for buying a ticket to come here. That means a lot to us um, and it's a huge way of supporting us. We are both um, not quite poor starving PhD students but very nearly. And um, at the beginning of the year, every year, we have kind of the financial hump of uh, the final little bits of tuition payments we have to pay after, after scholarships. And so all of you coming to this has supported us, and we are so deeply thankful for that. We also wanted to let you know other ways that you could connect with us. Or support us of course I have my podcast which I would invite you to listen to if you haven't listened to it before every week I choose a theme and I look at it through the lens of three pieces of art something visual and something literary and something musical and I love doing that it was kind of an outlet for me doing my PhD it was also a great way to stop annoying my friends by recommending books and movies to them So I would love for you to um, give that a listen if you want. And then uh, also a kind of more practical way of support that I've created in that is something called a Patreon. So last year, I was feeling like a bit overwhelmed because I was kind of doing three full-time things. I was doing a PhD, which requires all of your heart and soul. I was trying to provide for myself overseas, which also requires uh, all of your effort, if not all of your heart and soul, and then also doing the podcast. And I was feeling a bit burnt out, and so I prayed about it, and I felt like the two things I felt really called to put my energy towards really were the podcast and my PhD. And so I created a Patreon, which is basically a subscription kind of model where people can support $2 or $10 a month, And as a thank you, I just kind of invite you into my journey. So I do monthly updates called the Joinal. (laughs) When your name is Joy and everybody else makes puns on it your entire life, you I think are entitled to make a few puns of your own. So I do the journal where I do kind of thoughts and what I've been learning every month. My favorite thing I think that I do is I put all of the books I've read for pleasure, which ones I like, which ones I didn't and what I thought of them, and I love to hear other books other people are um, are reading. and then I do secret podcasts, I love doing playlists. Um, out of curiosity, are there any people in here who are on the Patreon? Thank you so much. You all have kept me going truly through this year. And I guess chat with them if you want to know what it's like. Um, So I do that, and we'll have computers set up if that's something you're interested in um, participating in. Uh, We'll have those out in the lobbies. And Joel has also recently started a Patreon.
3: Indeed, so this was also somewhat of a conundrum for me because I knew I would be doing somewhat of the same thing, which is when I hit academic work, I knew I wouldn't stop writing music, and uh, this became a problem because I, I I was trying to figure out sort of how do I sort of manage these two things and trying to sort of you know keep work going so that I can uh, provide for the finances that uh, that go into supporting this this enormous PhD project that we're doing. It's kind of a it's a marathon. You just kind of keep on going. And I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm toward the beginning of my PhD. So I'm watching Joy. I'm learning all the all the things along the way. I'm like, ah, oh, yes,
1: that. So send me over the final hump and, and Joel, That's right, and get me started. give him a good start. So
3: for me, <laughs> what I'm doing is with the Patreon, uh, I'm wanting to sort of get my music in a space where you can actively start engaging with it. So I'm going to start releasing music monthly. Uh, and so if you join me on my Patreon, you're going to be getting... Uh, new orchestral music. You're going to be getting. Um, I, I, for some of you, you might, might know this. I'm an audiobook reader. I read children's audiobooks, so I will be doing some. <laughs> I see some fans out there. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'll be doing some some dramatic readings. Um, I'll also be doing essays. I'm a photographer, so I'll be doing a lot of exclusive photography and more. But this is just a way to to sort of. Uh, bring people, again, as Joy said, in, into our journeys. This is this is the active day-to-day of our lives is sort of uh, letting you kind of glimpse what we're doing. And part of this is actually bringing to bear some of what we're learning in our PhD so that you can engage with it as well. So that some of that will be um, available to everyone and some of that will be for me also. I'm going to be doing some exclusive essays in Patreon as well. So.
1: And then, of course, almost all of the music that you've heard tonight is you can... Listen to it anywhere you stream online to Spotify, iTunes, or if you're someone who likes to buy local, you can go to joelclarkson.com.
3: Forward slash store.
1: Forward slash store. <laughs> um, so we would love to keep up with you and um, to connect with you in, in those ways. But we just wanted to thank you all very much for coming. And to end this evening with a song that is our hearts. We, we know the feeling, I know the feeling, of wanting to be open and awake to beauty, but of being weary. And so we hope that this has been an evening that has blessed you and that has opened up your heart to this. But this is a final song for you, and then we'll end with a doxology, which we would love for you all to join us in.
0: a little bit stronger just a little bit better me May-